So last week we took you up to the tragic end of Boudicca's story. Or I suppose as some might see it, uh, the, the glorious moment of her defiant immortalisation. And it's a classic ending of a story. Icarus falls into the ocean, William Wallace's rebels all cry out freedom at Bannockburn, uh, Tom Hanks shoots a pistol at a tank in Saving Private Ryan. It's a way of ending a story that, that sort of just leaves it up to the, to the viewer to imagine what happens next and usually get some nice music over the top of it that tells you everything's going to be absolutely fine. I think the way that we tell the ending of this story of Boudicca's revolt um, has a lot in common with Thelma and Louise which, I mean, you all knew I was going to make that comparison, obviously. Um, obviously, Susan Sarandon is Boudicca. Uh, Gina Davis is, pro- is probably both of Boudicca's daughters. Brad Pitt is a, a improbably sexy Prasitagus. Um And Harvey Keitel is Paulinus, of course. And in this telling, Paulinus is sort of left shaking his fist at Boudicca as she drives her chariot over a cliff in slow motion. And it's a good ending to the story because it, it cuts it at sort of the simplest moment. We don't really need to think about what any of it means. The, the, the music does that for us. And in this last defiant act, despite dying, everything's going to sort itself out. You know, Matt Damon will morph freakishly into an old man and the, the, Scot- the Scottish people will, will win their freedom and, and Daedalus will thank the gods for handing down such a, such a clear moral in the form of the death of his son. But the thing is, we, we don't get to see Thelma and Louise's mangled bodies at the bottom of the canyon, do we? And that's, that's probably a wise editorial decision for the, for the movie, but it does leave out a part of the story. So to depart from this very laboured metaphor, by leaving Boudicca's story with her death, it becomes a myth. And in fact, it becomes more myth than history in many ways. And I think... Well, with the look at the Battle of Watling Street that we, we took last time, I hope we're a bit clearer that this is, this is an event that real people took part in. And real people had to deal with the aftermath of. And that's what we're going to look at in this Pedestals Season 2, Episode 3, The First Britannia. So, Boudicca. Or Bodicea. Boudicca. Sometimes Bodicea. It's made up to matter. I pronounce it Boudicca. Boudicca. Boudicea. Boudicca. I, I always thought it was Bodicea. Boudicca. Boudicca. Bodicea. Boudicca. Who knows? I choose Boudicca. Boudicca. That sounds a bit like a joke. Boudicca was a Roman. English. A Scottish. She was Queen of the Iceni. In early Britain. I'm not even sure who the Britons were. She was a top Essex girl. And I see found out that I don't even think she was Scottish. Chariots. A lady in a chariot. Big chariot. Which, as we all know, had knives fastened to the wheels. She had red hair. Crazy hair. Long red hair. Tangled up with Britannia. A plus-sized lady. With a Union Jack shield. She was like the first female war lady. Combined all the tribes. She united them against somebody. The Romans. I feel like if she'd won, we'd know more. Queens, Celts and... Maybe if she was a man, we'd know more, but hey. I think she killed a kid. Think she was the first ever feminist. I hope she was a feminist. The talk about Christina Rossetti. Jane Austen. Jane Eyre, for that matter. Queen Boudicca was the original proto-feminist. 
Before we get started, I must just make a very quick punt for anybody who would like to support this podcast to head over to patreon.com forward slash pedestals, where you can make any small contribution you'd like towards the support of this podcast. Thank you very much and enjoy. Welcome back once again, valued listeners. We are in the final stretch of the story of Boudicca. Um, As I said in that little intro, last week we took you up through the the revolt, through all of the rampaging and blood and fire of this great battle at Watling Street. And as I said, this is where the story usually ends, but there is an aftermath. There is an aftermath and the story doesn't, doesn't exist in a vacuum. The rest of the inhabitants of Britannia have to continue to live their lives. And indeed, the, the Romans who won that battle have to continue to live their lives afterwards. Now, Paulinus, the victorious Paulinus's response was a vast swathe of reprisals. As he saw it, he had to make an example of this, this rebellious province. As I was saying, the defeat of Boudicca's army ha- had to be demonstrative of Roman power. That was, that was why the very outnumbered Paulinus had sought that engagement in the first place. He couldn't be seen to be running away. He had to demonstrate supremacy of Roman might. And the crackdown after the revolt was, was equally about showing the rest of the empire, the rest of the provinces, what happens to those who resist Roman rule. Hingley and Unwin, whose, whose book I've used a lot in this series, write, quote, the historical sources also tell us about the scale of the reprisals carried out by the Romans against the Britons, that wavering tribes were ravaged by fire and sword while a serious famine struck the province, end quote. And it seems that retaliation was, as is often the case, pretty indiscriminate. Uh, Nick Field says the line of the governor's bloody march was marked by the smoke of burning hamlets and villages. This is an attack against... The, the people of Britannia, all of which I suppose are seen to be complicit. I mean, as uh, Hingley and Unwin say, there are sort of the wavering tribes, those who are seen to not be full-throated in their support of Rome and in their defiance against Boudicca were seen as helping her and were ravaged for it. As you could see the GIs doing in Vietnam and the, the Nazis in occupied France, and this is a kind of a tale as old as time. Fields goes on to point out that uh, for Paulinus who's living in this patriarchal Roman power politics world, you know, he is swimming in that world. He had, you know, days before, before the Battle of Watling Street, faced the distinct possibility of being defeated by a woman, by this woman rebel. Really, one of, off the top of my head, I can't think of any other Roman generals who are defeated by women. And so, you know, facing the scorn of his peers, and I think perhaps slightly consequent to that, there is this real bitterness to this reprisal. He's a sort of a bad winner. You know, we all know that situation of somebody who's just scraped a win and then and then is, is less than gracious in victory. Tacitus narrates the aftermath as, as follows. He says, quote, The whole army was now concentrated and kept under canvas, with a view to finishing what was left of the campaign. Its strength was increased by the Caesar, who's, uh, the Caesar being uh, Nero, who sent over from Germany 2,000 legionaries, eight cohorts of auxiliaries, and 1,000 cavalry. And the tribes which had shown themselves dubious or disaffected were harried with fire and sword. Nothing, however, pressed so hard as the famine on an enemy who, careless about the sowing of crops, had diverted all ages of the population to military purposes, while marking out our supplies for his own property. End quote. So what Tacitus is talking about there in the second half of that is that you know, in this agricultural society, the decision to sustain a war effort for too long can itself spell disaster. 
because as well as those these those 80,000 reported dead Britons, whether we take that as a true figure or not, presumably disproportionately, these 80,000 people were, you know, from the, the fit young people who would be reaping a harvest and the absence of these people of prime working age from their homes and from their fields, either when they were off fighting the revolt or indeed the fact they never came back because they were dead, meant this catastrophic famine in in the coming winter of 61 AD. It is worth noting again that this, the way that Tacitus phrases this plays beautifully into this morality, this lesson that he is trying to, to deliver. The, the kind of over-emotional response of these Celts has led to their own downfall. You know, oh, stupid Celts, they forgot about sowing any harvest. They were so angry that they all rose up. And, I mean, as he puts it, they were careless about the sowing of their crops, which, which again, places the blame kind of squarely on their laps for this, this huge famine. Um, I think it can be presumed that, you know, Paulinus's crackdown afterwards didn't help, that Catus's tax policy is probably already a, a kind of deadly burden on these people. But in any case, uh, an author called David Mattingly in his book, An Imperial Possession, calculates or, or estimates, or I mean, I don't know how he came to this number, but that's why he's done the work for us, which is great that from the conquest of 43 AD to the end of the Boudican Revolt in 61 AD, the Romans caused the deaths of something like a quarter of a million Britons. And that's out of a population of only two million. So an eighth of the entire population of Britain is dead. And the battle, I think we can see the Battle of Watling Street and the following the, the Roman crackdown and the famine as the, the cherry on the cake, really, of a period of staggering violence in Britain. Now, the question immediately gets raised of, was this crackdown too brutal? Were the reprisals too much? I mean, obviously, to our moralistic kind of thinking, they, of course they are. Um, but even at the time, Catus, the, the, the procurator from episode one, uh, who, who had caused the whole thing in the first place, he gets fired. And the replacement procurator, Julius Classicianus, arrives. And in Tacitus's words, he says, quote, he, he reported to Rome that no cessation of fighting need be expected until the supersession of Suetonius, the failures of whom he referred to his own perversity, his successes to the kindness of fortune, end quote. He's basically saying that Paulinus, uh, Suetonius is Paulinus, same person, was kind of needlessly exacerbating the situation. That, as we said, Paulinus was now emotionally invested in this. He's, he's, re he's responding with kind of knee-jerk brutality. And that the situation had become too personal for him and that they needed a replacement governor. That, in fact, Paulinus might, you know, was creating circumstances which might create, you know, five more Boudicca's in the next year or two. So instead, we get this new guy, Tapilianus, this new governor who would be softer to a province which hadn't really responded very well to, to Roman severity. Now, for Emperor Nero, and for, the, I suppose, the Roman state more generally, this was a great victory, really. It was a vindication of, of continued Roman supremacy. He named the, the 14th Legion uh, the best of all, and he gave them the honorific Martia Victrix, which means warlike and victorious, the 20th Legion Valeria Victrix, valiant and victorious. So this is a kind of great triumphant moment in many senses for, for, for Nero, who's, who's already struggling at this point to keep any, any degree of kind of public credibility and, and popularity. It seems quite likely as well that the Romans took this as an opportunity to behave as with any of their other victories, essentially as if they had just conquered the island all over again. And so they, they looted and they, they confiscated wealth. We see these traces of facilities sort of tacked on to, to Roman forts of this era 
for processing and holding large numbers of, of cattle um, and horses and probably slaves as well. So, I mean, that would further add to the sort of depopulation of this, the brutalization of this province. And of course, we see this as really brutal colonial militarism. But from the Roman perspective, it's a, it's a sort of civic militarism. It's in the first episode, that phrase, parter victoria pax, that I was talking about, peace earned through victory. The continued sort of civic health of the empire, of the imperial project, requires in Romanized this kind of brutal treatment. It's both a justified and a kind of expedient measure. Now, the closing note on this story from Tacitus is of a freedman called Polycletus. Um, a freedman, I mentioned freedman in the first episode, I think. A freedman is a former slave who had bought his freedom or who had been awarded it for good service. Um, and freedman, as much as that might sound like somebody who's going to be, you know, only one stage above a slave in terms of the social order of things, freedman actually occupied quite a special, quite a useful role in Roman society because they were they were well acquainted with the workings of government. They had often worked for, you know, a, a, an administrator or a noble, but they, they themselves were not noble. And the nobles would disdain to do anything as sort of petty as bureaucracy and administration. So these freedmen could, with, without really breaching societal norms, they could do the really boring, the really unglamorous work of running the state. And actually later in the empire, they form a sort of civil servant class and they could wield quite large amounts of power. Now Polycletus gets sent by Nero, in Tacitus's words, to inspect the state of Britain, uh, Nero cherishing high hopes that through his influence the rebellious temper of the natives be brought to acquiesce in peace. And this is a typical freedman job, it's kind of take a lay of the land, get things actually working again, now the highborn politicians, now the Catus and Paulinus have scrambled everything up won their victories and run off back to Rome with all of their honours intact, Polycletus gets to come and fix everything. Now Tacitus actually kind of casts him as a sort of debauched denizen of the metropole. Remember Tacitus is talking about the kind of degrading influence of imperial society in Rome. He says, quote, whose Polycletus, whose immense train had been an incubus to Italy and Gaul, end quote. So he's kind of decked him out in all these sort of crass, tacky trappings of nouveau riche splendour. And when he arrives, he kind of reigns in Paulinus and he gets his, his sticky fingers into everything and he, he sends this very favourable politic report of how everything's absolutely fine now. But Tasta says, quote, to the enemy, on the other hand, he was a subject of derision. With them, the fire of freedom was not yet quenched, yet they had still to make the acquaintance with the power of freedmen. And they wondered that a general and an army who had accounted for such a war should obey a troop of slaves, end quote. So again, you know, even after we would think the moral of this story has been delivered, manful Roman stoicism has won through, Tacitus is still leaving us with this reminder of the sort of effeminate, despotic, debauched hand of Nero reaching across. This sort of Roman fallen virtue has made these good, virtuous men like Paulinus servile and that they have to answer to slaves and to women, you know, the worst possible thing that you could do. And that it's only, significantly, it's the kind of simple, the naive clarity of the barbarians, of the Celts, of the Britons, whatever we want to call them, who can see the wrongness of this. And it, it occurred to me that I think it's interesting that, that even this element of the story, in my eyes, subconsciously underwent a kind of a bit of a reversal from a modern point of view. Um, as, I, as I was saying a few minutes ago when I, when I introduced him, the freedmen are kind of these sensible bureaucrats, to my mind, they're these people who aren't really so much in the 
in the rat race of honour and prestige that all of these nobles getting tangled up about. They're just there to do a competent job and they're kind of unafraid of the treasury of state and uninterested in legacy and war. And he comes in and he puts a stop to the bloodshed because that's the facts essentially of what Tacitus is telling us. He just, he spins it in this way that makes that look like a kind of exotic and effeminate thing to do. So perhaps the effeminate, the debauched Roman way of doing things isn't, isn't so bad. I mean, Tacitus would point out that as a, as a London-dwelling, decadent, uh, virtuous individual, that, that is what I would say. Now, finally, we actually have no clear record of what happened to Boudicca's daughters after the revolt. The commonly held theory is that they all poisoned themselves together, Boudicca and her daughters. And that sort of fits with the narrative shape of the story. You know, it is, it is their violation, along with Boudicca's, that is the spark for this event. And in, in the more modern understanding, I think it's, it's a sort of a preservation of their autonomy. It's the same autonomy that the whole event is perhaps fought for. You know, Br- British national autonomy, I suppose, it, it becomes in many senses. But it starts as this female bodily autonomy. And it, it, it fits the narrative arc of the story. I'm not saying it's justified or right, but that they exit the stage with Boudicca, rather than returning to the status of kind of helpless subjects of Rome. And I'd, I'd further suggest that actually this is reflected in the statue that we began this series with. The daughters huddling in the, the protective aura of their mother as they transition from life into myth. Now, aside from the more sort of personal stories, the, the bigger question is the actual sort of legacy of the effect, the, I guess the geopolitical effect of this on Rome and Britain. Now, there are some, there are some interesting kind of uh, domino knock-ons from this and actually counterfactuals to consider with this story did it you know did the revolt really achieve anything if the goal was to throw off the roman occupation entirely then no not really as we heard from paulinus's reprisals that this was actually kind of the pretext for a deepening of military control in britain Uh, from the 60s ad there's there's this kind of trend seen in the archaeology of older forts actually being reoccupied and of increased military presence in the province. As Tastas says, you get another, I think, 7,000 Roman soldiers come into Britain after the revolt. In fact, over the coming three centuries of Roman occupation, because Britain will remain uh, Roman until, well, that's kind of slightly debated, but a good 300 years, Britain will be one of, if not the most militarised province proportionate to its size. For reference, there were usually three legions stationed in Britain, as compared to only one legion in the Roman province of Africa, which is basically modern Tunisia, a good chunk of Libya and Algeria. And Roman Britain would then become the site of Hadrian's Wall, which is, you know, one of the most famous pieces of of military engineering ever. So in many ways, we can kind of see that that if the the goal was to chuck the Roman army out of Britain, then then it definitely didn't succeed. Significantly, though, it, it could be said that Boudicca's revolt marked a check in Roman ambitions. When we talk about Rome and Britain, what we're actually talking about is about a third to a half of the island, and never island, never, never the island of Ireland in any kind of concrete way at all. And when we talk about Rome and Britain, it's very easy to us to just imagine it's, it's the whole thing, and it would make sense for the empire, you know, which is trying to tidy up its borders, which is doing away with this pesky, piratical island, not just to conquer half of it. But even with Agricola, who comes along in in 78 AD um, and who ventures all the way up to the north of Scotland, Roman Britain remains pretty much contained to the southeast and the Midlands and East Anglia. So we could could see that Boudicca's revolt 
sort of puts a full stop on Roman expansion. And as a footnote to that, I don't think it's any coincidence that this marks the current lines between the kind of the Celtic and the non-Celtic parts of the modern United Kingdom. And I say those things with with air quotes because we're going to get on to why those are kind of flawed ways of of of, uh, of, of putting that idea across. But I, I really don't think that's a coincidence that that is those are those are the lines along which we often still demarcate our difference. Essentially, those parts of the United Kingdom which were Roman and those parts that weren't. And it, well, it even tracks along the line of the north-south divide, we could say. So it's left, a, I mean, if, if any legacy it's left, that's a pretty deep legacy in the social makeup of our nation. Now, there is an interesting counterfactual in, in Boudicca actually winning at Watling Street. You know, as with any counterfactual worth considering, I think it's at least plausible. If we look at, you know, the track record, the trajectory of the revolt and the numbers involved, Paulinus's victory was pretty content, contingent and... Emperor Nero was already incredibly stretched at this point, as I was, uh, as, as I think I detailed in the first episode, both in terms of his political capital and and economically and militarily. Uh, the Great Jewish Revolt sprang up only a few years later. There was lots of internal pressures on the empire. It actually seems kind of plausible that with a major Roman defeat at Watling Street and really the Roman military presence gone, it seems unlikely that he would have gone and tried to reconquer it. Britain had been really tough to conquer in the in the first place, tough to hold. It hadn't been a great net asset to the empire. So, I mean, rather than seeing this 300, 350-year period of, of Roman Britain as a, as a formative part of this, you know, this nation's history, we would have instead seen it as a, a two-decade little blip um, and then something, you know, something else entirely happening. I'm, I'm not going to speculate on what that would be. There's, there is, however, an interesting kind of reversal of this counterfactual. There's a counter-counterfactual. It's been suggested that Nero was actually looking for any excuse to extract himself from Britain already in the, the late 50s, early 60s AD. He needed the troops elsewhere. elsewhere. So, so ironically, it may well be that Boudicca's revolt actually made this withdrawal impossible. You know, after suffering a string of you know small but clear defeats it was anathema to the romans understanding of themselves to call it a day to say all right Boudicca you've won we're leaving they had to have the last word in everything and so Boudicca arguably created an environment in which it was impossible for Nero to leave Britain without losing face he had to hold on because otherwise it would be kind of tacitly accepting that the revolt was a success and that revolts generally can be successful and Nero couldn't afford to, to accept that. So ironically, the, the other counterfactual might be if Boudicca never made the revolt in the first place, the Romans would have left. Now, counterfactuals aside, as I said, Britain, Britannia, you know, had only been a province for a couple of decades in 60, 61 AD. And I think we can say that one legacy of the Boudiccan revolt is it, it seems like a clear moment in which it becomes certain that Britannia is to remain a province of the Roman Empire. Unlike, you know, Germany was essentially a province for a little bit of Germania, and then they got kicked out. But the Boudican Revolt, you know, if, if not necessarily definitely the cause of this long-term occupation, at least clearly demarcates it. As for the, the rest of the history of, of Roman Britannia as a province, it remained an incredibly costly province until it was lost in the kind of 4th, 5th century. It held, as I said, a disproportionate number of soldiers. Because of its kind of advantageous defensive position, you know, because of the English Channel and so forth, it actually served 
as a base in the latter part of the of the imperial era for pretenders, for emperors to, to kind of declare themselves Augusti and to dare the emperor in Rome to come and get them because they knew they were on this kind of island fortress. Now, aside from geopolitics, and I suppose the, the aims of the revolt from the leader's point of view, it also had a profound effect on the society and the populace of Britain. As we've already detailed, the, the brutal realities of empire were made very clear uh, on the various tribes of Roman Britain, whether they were involved directly or not. The three major centres of population of the province, uh, Camulodunum, Londinium and Verulamium were ravaged and this would have this would have totally changed the face of the economy of the region. I find it quite striking actually that, that Colchester, you know, Camulodunum, Colchester, of all places, this story seems to suggest is the sort of ancestral capital of this island. And I don't think it would be many people's first guesses. But a couple of millennia later, it's now a kind of smallish provincial town. And this is you know, this is kind of speculation on my part, but East Anglia, as the heartland of this revolt, the worst affected both by the Boudican forces and by the Roman reprisals, even today doesn't really have an obvious metropolis. It doesn't have a motorway. You know, so perhaps in a kind of butterfly effect sort of way, it is, it's kind of set back as a consequence of Boudicca's revolt. Now, far less speculatively, the revolt totally switched the focus of the economic life of the country onto London. This city that was, you know, a Roman colony, really, was already a growing kind of entry point for continental trade and supplies. But with the old capital of the province destroyed, quite neatly kind of got out of the way by Boudicca, Londinium became the city of, the, of Roman Britain, you know, for the next 300 years. And it's a perfect capital for an empire that needed quick access to an island and that, that kind of proved itself, uh, you know, not to be left to its own devices. So perhaps that's one of the legacies of this story as well, that, that, that London is the, the economic and political centre of the country. Now, the story of, of the end of Roman rule is, in Britain is, is debated, but most neatly, we can place it at 410 AD. The Romanized Britons are kind of assailed on all sides by lots of people, the people we call ourselves after today, the Saxons and the Scots and the Angles. And, and by this point, we are talking about Romanized Britons. I think they would have a lot more in common with, with Romans than with, than with Boudicca. And in a very un-Boudican move, they, they write to the Emperor Honorius for help. And he simply responds, look to your own defences. So in a final dramatic reversal, where Boudicca had burned down the Roman cities to make them leave, the beleaguered Romano-British ended up begging for the legions to come back. Now for this next section, I have got my very good friend Phoebe on. Uh, she is one of the initial respondents uh, who you can hear in the opening credits of this episode to talk about her reflections on this story. As you will hear, I haven't quite cracked the professional recording uh, malarkey um, and we just jump right in in the middle of a conversation really apropos of nothing so sorry about that we start off with me um, asking for her help in pronouncing the name of a Scottish writer uh, the relevance of which should become quickly apparent enjoy this guy Hector Boe he <laughs> B-O with an umlaut E-C-E mm -hmm. e -E. mm -hmm. Hector is obviously Scottish. Hector and yeah. Scottish. Cool. Well, so Hector, Hector Boici, we'll call him, yeah. um, wrote in the 16th century a, a play about mm -hmm. Boudicca, 
um, although he called her mm-hmm. Voda, um, and he set it in a place called Camelon, which is near Falkirk, mm-hmm. um, and it basically is all about Boudicca, but it, she's Scottish. She's Scottish. There's a bit in Old Scots that I would love you to read. Oh, my God. I don't think like, I'm going to be able to do this, but, okay. like... Okay. <laughs> Had the goddess for tonight, me to bene ein man, I micht not how sustenate Samoni importable in Eurus don be Romanus. Beautiful. And I think that translates as, apparently, had huh. the gods given me the fortune to be a man, I might not have sustained so many unbearable injuries done by Romans, which is a very Voudica mm. kind of thing to say. What might be useful is if you give like a really quick, any little insights of what your what your understanding of Boudicca's significance. I thought I thought she was Scottish. I thought she, like, the way I identified with her, she was like a fiery warrior Aries mm-hmm. woman. Like, Aries horoscope Aries. Like, that she was like a typical Aries warrior yeah, yeah, yeah. goddess. Yeah, so it was fascinating to find out that she wasn't Scottish yeah. because it, like... That, that jarred with me. Like, <laughs> that really jarred me. And also finding out that it wasn't Boudicca that's actually probably Boudicca. Was your impression that she was Scottish? I imagine wasn't, mm. again, formally wasn't in your primary no. school or something. No, 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 because I was, I, we, we didn't even... Some sense of, of ownership, prideful ownership of her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, totally. And actually that quote that you have, I went for sick form, I went to an all-boys school. Mm-hmm. And so this, like... She gets all the shit because she's a woman in a field of men. So I fully, really relate to her as a person. Mm-hmm. And like, I was the only girl on our hockey team, and it was just shit. It was so shit. <laughs> I see. Okay, so so she was a useful, a useful kind of like myth role model. Icon. Myth. Do you remember being taught about it? No, because we because I went to school in Scotland, so we didn't. Oh right, we didn't. She wasn't in our primary okay. school. Did you? Is there less of that? We had loads of Roman stuff in primary oh, school. Oh yeah, we didn't know. I mean, we didn't learn anything about Rome. Okay. Or Romans. The only thing we learned was Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> and that they didn't come in. And so I think that's why Boadicea was like, oh, she was a warrior queen. I suppose that might be a more triumphant image of her, especially if you're like, yeah. Well, like she, they didn't get in here and we had this warrior queen and, yeah, and she so stopped I was, them. That was one thing I found really interesting about whether or not her rebellion stayed the Romans or if it if it repelled it from the rest of Britain. The, the Romans, the, the area that they conquered... To me, I was like, it, it really fit with the sort of, um, that is Southern. Yes. There's a Southerner thing, okay. which I have in my head of like bootlicking royalists right. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, maybe it's this, whether it's individual or collective psyche, we're like component parts of yeah. like the myth and the history and yeah, the yeah, stories yeah, yeah. that we have. Yeah. It just feels like, wow, maybe there's a stronger <laughs> Roman component. Okay, this is this is something interesting I want to talk about, the Dreaming the Eagle, this book mm. that you read. One of the interesting things about that struck me as I was actually looking into all of this is how it definitely is her story, but actually she kind she kind of doesn't feature mm. in many ways. Do you think the fictionalized version of her is trying is that a service mm. to the story of hers? And does it actually flesh her out a bit and go, Well what you know, she was born at some point and she 100%. got married at some point. It's kind of what you have to do with so much of history when it comes to women's experiences mm. or colonised people's experiences. Yep. Which she's both. Which she's both. Yeah. Is that you have to... It's like you're doing, like, psychological archaeology on everything you know. I mm. think, interestingly, the subject of that forensic dissection, it's like you think you're d- dissecting Boudicca uh-huh. and then you get up to the face and you're mm. like, Tacitus, it's you! And you've actually been looking at Tacitus's yeah. brain. You have to take your understanding of how like what you know about how colonized peoples mm-hmm. or oppressed peoples 
stories like what what are, what are done with them now and so yeah yes. I, I feel like the fictionalised story I, I don't know it's hard to say whether I just prefer it because I mean it's fascinating yeah. it's really like goes into the druidic like like they have much more of a kind of nature based system with a more of a more of an appreciation of the archetypal feminine talking about archetypes I think is really interesting because because I think the the class that she fits into is the is the warrior the female warrior mm. so um, we have Penthesilia who's the queen of the Amazons mm. who mm. Achilles falls in love with her and as he's killing her Eowyn in Lord of the Rings Joan of Arc like mm-hmm. these kind of like they're women who gain power through through the fact that it's notable that they are violent they are at least militaristic mm. see with the she's a she's a she's a violent woman like a, a powerful woman mm-hmm. and and in terms of the roman like it being is it ta- is tacitus tacitus right? is our primary source yeah through his like in his words yeah like i think what i noticed which i don't know if you would have done but maybe it's just because from the experience of being a woman i'm producing a film which has which is about like sexual violence uh-huh. and so i think a lot about that kind of um like narrative mm-hmm. and i was like I don't think she was raped. Like, I think that they needed her to be raped. Or I just kind of immediately discount that. That the way that there is this, like, masculine sometimes, or male or whatever, chauvinist mm-hmm. need for a woman to be deprived of her sexual power or to be yeah. shamed in some way, yeah, that yeah, she yeah. can't just be violent. Almost that's the way that... Na- yeah, the only way the narrative holds together in yeah. the male psyche is like, well, she must need to be yeah. raped in order for this to have any... Yeah. Any truth to it. It's that whole like virgin whore. She can't, like, she can't be both. She can't. So, and also that there has to be some like assaulted sexual, uh, her sexuality needs to be assaulted in some way Mm -hmm. in order to like even, even allow her. Well, I think the the interesting thing now, the the form that that might take now, possibly it allows men to feel sort of virtuously outraged on her behalf, sort of allows them to grant her. Some degree of agency because yeah. it's like, well, she deserves agency because she's been assaulted in this terrible way. Yeah. Rather than seeing her just as yeah. an agent like from, the first, of from the first place. Like, exactly. Yeah. Well, okay, actually, that brings us around nicely too, because I think there's this third archetype mm. of women, or it's not an archetype actually. These women in history, I think the most direct one is this woman, Cartamandua, who was the, the queen of the Brigantes, who are the tribe kind of. Yeah in basically Yorkshire or like basically most of the north they were a very big tribe and they they were never really subsumed Mm. because she was she she, she had a much longer reign than Mm. Boudicca you know she didn't she wasn't just about for eight months or a year she was doing some really uncomfortable realpolitik stuff of like Caraticus this British freedom fighter Mm. came to her and said I need your help Mm. shelter me and she went I'm going to hand you over to the Romans because I'm not getting I'm not dealing with this yet I think within our envisioning of history that that woman doesn't work uh-huh. But could, could, or, or, oh, sorry, yeah. when I say our, she's I mean... slain in that in the novel as well. Oh right, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm sure she's she's a I'm traitor sure. because it says shades of grey rather than being a sort of paragonic. I don't even know if that's a real word. <laughs> uh, figure semi mythic as Buddha yeah. can, can become is almost more like a some kind of conduit of some sort of abstract force. Buddha yeah. becomes certainly in our kind of historical envisioning of her. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's interesting. The cast manager featured in the novel and yeah, and Caraticus. <laughs> I swear he's got a different name. Quite possibly, Caratoc uh, or something. Caraticus would have been his Caradoc. Caradoc. Yeah, so yeah. So Caraticus yeah. would have been his. Romanized name, right? Actually, okay. all of these are Romanized. Caradoc and Bodicea get it on in the novel. I do that. Yeah, he would be an older, older gentleman. Yeah, he's an older gent. In the because we talked, we've spoken about what you your kind of projections were. Were you 
were you surprised by anything in this story? It didn't make me like the Romans anymore. It didn't. No. no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe that's obvious, but yeah, yeah, yeah. like even the whole straight road thing. Yeah. I was like, you fucking dicks. I hear this lots with, with people talking about just kind of the kind of trade-off of Roman yeah. rule. How is that even? It's a, a trade, yeah. It's a, well, as I said, it's an eighth of the population of your country dying in two decades. Yeah. And in exchange, you receive massive tax exploitation. Mm-hmm. Trickle-down economics didn't mm-hmm. work then either. You get wine. You might have some wine at some yeah, point. Yeah, oh my God. And, which I think is, I mean, what you're saying about the similarities today, I think the main one is there are these structures of exploitation that it's very easy to look like a benefiting people because they're benefiting very visibly a top tiny percentage of people so people like actually Prasitagus or Boudicca frankly Mm -hmm. except for obviously the terrible stuff that happened to her I think would actually be doing great under Roman rule probably it's interesting that she's like a focus of interest for you and for me like because the British Empire obviously mm-hmm. has collapsed. Yeah. But I still think that, like... Newsflash. <laughs> Sorry. It's a, it's a parade. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah, it's yeah. gone. <laughs> but I think it lives on in the public imagination. Yeah. Consciously or unconsciously, it's linked to the empire. Yes. And, like, Britain being this, like, you know, benevolent colonising... Well, so the, I suppose the relevance to that it, to, you know, to, to, bit, to the sort of Bodice, to, to Bodice, we can say, we can agree to this. You agree. said we could say Bodice. You can, you can say whatever you like. You can say Boda, but is that I think there's a massive case to say that we are, yeah. we are inheritors of the Romans much yeah. more than we are inheritors of Boudicca. Totally. In, in so many ways. Totally. I mean, particularly with our imperial past, but even just in the way we live our lives and yeah. the, the, the political systems we live with and the spiritual apparatus that we uh-huh. kind of are born into and all of that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yet, for some reason, we've chosen Boudicca even though Paulinus wins an underdog battle, that's the weird thing about this. Paulinus, mm. if you could really easily mm. rephrase this as a kind of a myth mm. that would make us feel really great about being the sort of descendants of of, mm. of the Roman Empire, to feel really great about our cultural antecedent, Paulinus, mm. winning this battle against mm. you know ridiculous, crazy odds. Yet that but hasn't we don't, happened. Yeah. yeah. This is kind of what I mean, why I think it's interesting that you've chosen to do it on Bodicea mm-hmm. and why she, I think, is an interesting figure for now is mm-hmm. that, like, in the with the collapse of the British Empire, mm-hmm. we're, like, living in this time, this kind of, like, hinterland time yeah. where these seeds of, like, revolt and rebellion, she's, like, an interesting figure to orient around yes. and to think, like, okay, there are these latent, like, yeah. rebellious... Yeah like simmering aspects yes. to us and and the potential to do really quite extreme I mean if we're talking this is such the most boring way of describing the Boudicca revolt but quite drastic measures you know like <laughs> yeah. burning the whole behaviour exactly am I getting this right Colchester was is it Canub- Camulodunum Camulodunum yeah. Camulodunum which was like the yeah. Roman centre it was the it was a, it was the pre-Roman it claims to be the only pre-Roman town in England oh, really? so it's it's the so it was the Romans turn up and that's where all the Britons are. That's right. or that's the only centre of any urbanised population. Right. And then they make it the capital from there. So then right. it becomes the Roman capital. So she she attacked it because it was like a Roman because it was military. the Roman. Well, I think she attacked it first and foremost because we're talking about the, the Temple of Claudius. The the more relevant one for that, I think, is London, where we are right now. Mm. Is the a, con- a continuity of yeah. London is this kind of obviously a highly aspirational place and a, and a wonderful city and I live here so I'm not going to put it down that much a place that kind of everyone constantly wants to 
leave. to smash yeah. and leave <laughs> and yeah. burn to the ground yes, because it totally. represents lots of kind of quite yeah. uh, kind of horrible things yeah 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 and it's got it's like as a financial centre it is somewhere that's like that is linked it's cosmopolitan and linked to the the rest of mm-hmm. the world in a quite an extractive way yes. so there is a sense like there is yeah. a kind of sense that London the place where like you know, foreign, if you want to say it, powers come in and take a lot. But it's a a double whammy, isn't it? Because again, I've said this story spins in lots of different directions, but we could say London is, you know, for for lots of people in 2016, London is the centre of 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 Brussels's long hand coming in and fiddling with our yeah, you know yeah, yeah. meat control as it is seen in Boudicca by, by Boudicca I think as these mm. b- big money coming in from abroad and and they don't really belong here and they're the, the London is this kind of mm. canker on the country but then there's also I think the, the the reverse of that possibly holds a lot more currency right now is the idea that London is representative emotionally mm. or, or or instinctively it feels like all of those big towers in Canary Wharf are representative of a system of exploitation that spans out from London to the rest of the world. Since then, there hasn't been, like, an atomic bomb that wiped everyone out and restarted. So, like, everything that comes with it that's, like, passed down in how we interact and the stories we tell each other, not even necessarily, like, about Bodicea. Yes. But, like, what our impressions are of London and, like, how I have this, like, idea of like you know southerners being being a certain way that is completely separate and like how that might have related to mm-hmm. the roman invasion there was this woman marie trevelyan this was in 1899 1900 she said she's talking here actually about the boer war which was going on at the time yeah. she's saying the, the the events of that year had in a measure effaced the names of england and the english and restored to us ours by birthright the broader names of britain and the british and she was writing about Boudicca, and for her i think that was what it was all about effacing the name of english and replacing it with the name of british so I think it's interesting that your version of Boudicca is mm. actually specifically regional. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's specifically... <laughs> I mean, it's it, so wrong. <laughs> yeah. My version, yeah. yeah. She's got the saltire painted on her Yeah, face. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the version that Hector Buicki was doing in his play yeah. was in the 16th century, which, I mean... I was about to say is a particularly fractious time between England and Scotland. That doesn't narrow it down massively in terms of like, but that was specifically yeah. lots of stuff going on in the 16th century in terms of the relationship between England and Scotland and whether or not they would be one country and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So he was using, he was literally mm. using Boudicca as like William Wallace or whatever as a as a, as, as a freedom like fighter a f- and, and very obviously the Romans are the, are the English. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I just think it's interesting that that, you know, developed, that's, what, 350 years later that Marie mm-hmm. Trevelyan's writing about her as actually a specifically uniting figure. Yeah. Even even the idea that the Iceni and these, like, Norfolk, Suffolk, you know, Southerners mm-hmm. actually were the, the kind of heroic, vicious mm-hmm. freedom fighters. Yeah. And that maybe sacrificed themselves for... It was like for your freedom. Exactly. For your, you didn't get Romanized. I know. Like we did. Exactly. We took the bullet. Exactly. We got Romanized. It's for funny. You. It was. It was interesting. Like witnessing that kind of like emotional shift. Like I was like, oh, these guys are all right. Yeah. yeah. The Southerners. <laughs> like, maybe they're okay. <laughs> yeah. But we're just constantly projecting. Indeed. Like Indeed. So, as to whether or who we are in that story or yeah. who, who we imagine our great rather great, than great, like great what I definitely be. used. To think of, which was like, oh, the English didn't put up any fight. You know, we put up the Hastings Wall. You know, I they just, just just like let themselves be rolled over. Are and... you under the impression that the Scots built Hadrian's Wall? 
<laughs> Shit. <laughs> of course. That's <laughs> brilliant. No, that's great. Sorry, I, that sounded really belittling of me. That's yeah, like, pretty... I love that. I okay. love, I love mistakes. Yeah, like okay, that. right. Now you say that, I obviously know that it was to like keep the savages out and that's yeah. that obviously then the Romans <laughs> built it. But yeah, I guess my like pride, my prideful yeah, yeah, like yeah. reinterpretation is like... Yeah, everything south of that. Yeah, it's like stay away. It's been had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but we've, we've held gonna, the line here. We've held, held the line. Hey, great. No, I love that. That's great. <laughs> That's a great note on which to take a break. Isn't it? Okay, um, so if we move on a little bit then, particularly if we're talking, this podcast is nominally about statues. This big statue of Boudicca that we've got mm. right outside Parliament, basically, is in mm-hmm. Parliament Square. I don't know, what does that say? What's that for? To me, I think they're kind of, I would say, kind of dead spaces now. Like, I don't think they are charged yeah. with what they were or used to be mm-hmm. maybe I don't know maybe if you were to build a statue somewhere that was kind of uh, contentious it would have a power but yeah. I don't find statues powerful and in a way that I think they probably were like I wonder what the most recent statue uh, of just a person figure. standing there yeah or even they're still made all the time yeah I mean in terms of like re- relatively in the great scope of things there's um you've got you've got but you've got Mandela and you've got Gandhi mm-hmm. they're true. also in Parliament Square mm. that I think is a really interesting thing I think there's a big debate about that mm. and maybe Boudicca fits into that debate mm. there's one way of thinking which is to say that Mandela and Gandhi who are both both essentially post-colonial heroes yeah you could say, oh, it's great for the old metropole of that system to be celebrating those people to show a sort of sea change in the way that they see that kind of thing. For me, it seems like... Tokenized. It's a, well, yeah, it's just... Well, it's a massively convenient to almost go like, oh, yeah, there are heroes. And you go, well, they were, they're not your heroes. Mm. Specifically, they're not. So they're, they're, mm. they're the heroes of another nation. And that seems... By, by having it in Parliament Square, you're almost suggesting that they're, that they're somehow products of... Yeah. And I just wonder if may, yeah. I mean maybe the Boudicca thing is is a version of that. Well, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous yeah. that it's uh, that it's out there in front of like yeah. the height of establishment. Exactly, Bo- yeah. like all of it, like Gandhi As if and Boudicca Mandela. Would be going Boudicca, like, like, here's the British Empire I'm I, and the suffragettes, yeah. or whatever. I know there's a suffragettes that. There's, there's a there? uh, yes. There's not. Um, there's not Emily Pankhurst. There's. Uh, some other one <laughs> we've just taken a short break to google who the stuff jet statue is in, in parliament square it's Millicent Fawcett it's Millicent Fawcett it's Millicent Fawcett for goodness sake Fawcett is, so yeah. have this like protest figure as like an well, exactly, inner statue yeah. form outside the establishment that the, like the establishment that they were protesting against yeah. yeah I think possibly part of maybe exactly the same story as to why Millicent Fawcett is there and why mm. Gandhi is there and why Boudicca is there because it's convenient it bolsters whatever power yeah is in so if it was Queen Victoria who like adopted the image of absolutely yeah, it's yeah. like yeah. yeah you can see people in power leech and um, appropriate but maybe yes. I'm just like hyper cynical but I just I just don't give a shit about statues <laughs> like why are you on this podcast like I think I, I don't think anyone or our generation does well you'd need to care about a statue to toss one into the even even if you're outraged by them yeah. you are tacitly saying this is a very important thing uh-huh. in order for me to be this angry about it you know what I mean yeah maybe it's just not like it's not something that consciously registers well we're like, talking about semiotic that. psychic power yeah. in our like collective yeah, yeah. landscape hold on I'm gonna show I'll like tell I'm you what if you, if you haven't properly looked at the Boudicca statue this is the Boudicca statue which oh, I actually okay. think is quite 
an Quite affecting cool. statue as compared to some. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's very like the chariot card in in tarot. The, the chariot seems to be being almost split. It's about to be split almost in half. Uh huh. Like down the middle. It's and it suggests that it's not very like necessarily very capable of transport, but it's like a a display of power. A reading of that is that it is a shell. Like it's almost, I guess, like a completed point in an, in a, a kind of ego cycle. So, mm-hmm. and it's over armored, and it, it it's actually can't take you where you need to go. <clears throat> yeah, as a vehicle. It's not like if you look at the wheels and you look at and the animals that are that are driving it. It's it's gonna all rip apart. And, I see. Okay. And it's almost like the moment before the phoenix. Okay. Like, it's like the a moment really before rebirth. Fated like, to completely implode. Yeah, but it's like crash. a very powerful fi- image. Mm. It's like an image of power and strength. But it's about okay. to, like. I think that's and it's super taking interesting. Taking you where it needs to go. With I mean, within apart. the context of this story, that's obviously like what she does. Yeah, you know, yeah. It takes her. It bears her to her death. Yeah. But it's her death, which is kind of her. I mean, this statue is often called the apotheosis of Boudicca. The apotheosis mm. means kind of the the transcendence, the kind wow. of moment of turning from a real person into yeah. a kind of mythic person, into a into a, a saint or an angel or heaven or whatever. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. I think that that it is that I think specifically the chariot. Even in the classical, so even for Tacitus, well, and for, and for Caesar actually, who initially you know invades um, Britain, um, when he he talks about the chariot at length, because it's it would be like it would be like if a war broke out now and we went and invaded a a, a country somewhere, it doesn't really matter where, and they were using bows and arrows. Mm. Lots of the war correspondents would be right. Would, would probably spend quite a long time talking about that and be like, and it's kind of it's kind of impressive, and it's it would become predictably loaded with all sorts of sort of metaphor about who those people are and what they what their relationship to us is and all that kind of mm. stuff. The 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 chariot at the time of, of Caesar's invasion of Britain was like you didn't use chariots because they're kind of they're kind of absurd. They're mm. they're kind of mad, aren't they? They're, they're, if we actually think about them, they're kind of like yeah. And I think that might well, have a link to the tarot, to the tarot thing. Is they're yeah. kind of they're almost centaurian. They almost look destined to fly off a cliff. So Tacitus is telling of that story. The use of the chariot is very keyed to tell a certain story about who she, yeah. who Boudicca is. She's this kind of exotic, mm. impressive. It's not, you know, it's not saying she's barbaric and stupid. It's saying that she's kind of impressive but foreign, alien, and even and that's sustained into our telling of the story. Yeah, that is something that I I love the image of them like. Of the Iceans, Icenes, Icenes yeah. wheeling about like boy racers yeah. at the beginning of a battle, yeah. just like zooming around, zooming around, yeah. zooming about. <laughs> I do know that my, you know, my kind of probably slightly boyish sort of fascination with the the, the specifics of the military aspects of it um, is a bit silly in many ways, but those bits are the things that interest me as well. Like if you imagine being there that it's like they have two completely different ways of doing things mm. so the Iceni are used to turning up to a battlefield and the other side would also be zooming around in chariots and you have mm. the zoomy phase where yeah. you go and chuck yeah, stuff yeah, at yeah. each other zoom around on chariots maybe like your best guys <laughs> jump off have a fight yeah. one of them wins everyone cheers maybe at that point you go home because yeah, you're like that's yeah. the fight done yeah. you know you've a little I mean I find myself doing this all the time with this subject is doing metaphors which are like Tacitus directly putting the metaphor yeah, in their mouth, yeah. which is, it's like, I was, what I was going to say is, it's like animals fronting. Rather than having a fight, lions mm. will roar at each other and front and do whatever. Instantly yeah, I'm yeah, going yeah. into Tacitus' is, is kind of dialogue, which is that these are animalistic people yeah, 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 and yeah. that there's a rational way of fighting, which is with 
stabby swords. Which is interestingly, like, much, much more bloodthirsty. Yeah, much more bloodthirsty like, and much less more, rational like, in many much, senses. Yeah, much yeah. less it, human. It makes lots of sense not to have lots of casualties and instead just to zoom around in your chariot yeah, and shout at each it. other and I blow big it. horns. Let's bring that back. Let's bring it back. Um, this is a possibly totally dead-end question or it's so big and vague that it's kind of pointless. But one thing I definitely want to cover mm-hmm. in the rest of this is the fact that... Bu- so Boudicca has become a subject for... I would suggest a quite sort of surface, a quite surface level feminist icon. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, in that, in that she is. So there's this book, What Would Boudicca Do, which is a, a book for, I think it's like kind of preteen girls, and it's about, okay. in many ways, totally good things. It's saying what would what Boudicca do isn't a question you can ask yourself, as in you can be capable of really decisive action and, and asserting yourself. But what what do you make of that? Mm. I mean, surface level feminism annoys me so much. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just find that like, well, like, what I would imagine in the reading of like, what would Boudicca do is mm-hmm. it's actually like a masculine, like it's mm-hmm. kind of like supporting quite a masculine yep. like way of being in the world as if... Well, as in the good things to do are yeah. attempt at being like a man, yeah, basically. Yeah, be like a girl be boss, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is like... Yeah, I think it comes from that. Same. So that that's... Because I, I think a lot of this surface feminism it is it's just capitalised feminism. Like, yeah. it's it's feminism that supports sure. capitalism. Yes. Like, but in well, terms... Of, a book. Or, yeah, yeah, but like, in terms of like, I, like a, an interpretation of Boudicca as a, a powerful female fig like mm-hmm. figure in a druid celtic landscape mm-hmm. i find more interesting in terms of like a like a complex nuanced feminism which is actually about broadening like every human's mm-hmm. giving more space and more power to like the feminized aspects of ourselves like i think yeah. it's more about like Boudicca as someone who is like deeply spiritual deeply connected to the landscape mm-hmm. deeply in communication with her mm-hmm. dreams in communication with her like responsibilities mm-hmm. and her relationships mm-hmm. like is a very different understanding of power what she's conducting for me I th- or what i would hope that she would conduct f- for people is probably not a uh, girl boss feminism yeah, yeah, yeah is about a girl who just kicks ass yeah who's like power hungry Mm -hmm. and like aspirational in a Mm -hmm. like material sense and do you this is a a, a maybe a hopeless question but the um, lots of like equivalent boys role models let's say from this period would be would be like Julius Caesar who is somebody who's famously like responsible Uh directly for millions of people's deaths and millions of people's enslavement but as a society we broadly don't discourage boys from going like he's a cool guy that we should yeah. think about so, so, so that I suppose what I was saying is that the, 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 the kickback against Boudicca as a feminist icon is like she was just a really brutal really violent person who mm, killed lots of people mm. if we make those apologies for male historical yeah. figures should we just also make them female historical figures or should we just stop making them for any historical yeah, figures yeah I think I think the latter okay. yeah I think the latter sure. yeah totally because yeah it doesn't make sense to be like you can have your own like personal your private warlord murderer. hero yeah. you know <laughs> yeah, who's like, your favourite murderer <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like yeah. and actually it's so funny you saying that I now remember but I remember when we were little one Christmas my brother this this really stuck with me because how outrageous is this my brother got a Roman sword helmet and like armour badass shield sure. he got the whole thing yeah and I got pyjamas and a, a 
a French tape, learn how to speak French tape. And I was like, are you for real? Like, and I just like ran around, like just fake stabbing me and like, you know, like. That's uh, a great metaphor. Anyway. Hey, good way to wrap up. Now, as I mentioned uh, before that interview, I definitely haven't cracked the professional interviewing technique, so I didn't really know how to say goodbye or thank you. Uh, So this is me after the fact saying thank you, Phoebe, and goodbye. Now, one thing that that whilst I was editing that interview really popped out to me and in in some of my follow-up reading came out to me is this, the slight difference in outlook we had on Boudicca as an individual and what, what element of her was worth talking about that I was... I think preoccupied with the idea of it as a factual event and Boudicca as as a a kind of a real person that we can find out some sort of objective truth about. Whereas Phoebe was, I think, there speaking more to the the sort of projected version of her, the fictionalised version of her or the projected story of what she might represent. Interestingly, and I don't know why it's... Well, I don't know what it means... But it's interesting that the the overwhelming majority of historians and professionals and archaeologists and so forth that have looked at the the archaeological studies and looked at the the, the textual sources and all the original stuff that we have to find out about Boudicca as a, as a real person have been men. And overwhelmingly, the historians who have done textual reviews on how she's been seen since then, the stories that have been built around her, and as well the the the, the dramatists and authors and uh, purveyors of fiction who have who have written about Boudicca have been women. As I said, I don't know what that means. I don't think it's a battle of the sexes kind of thing. But to follow up, I suppose, on that, on what what Phoebe was bringing out there, this is in many ways, I think, a story about a story, a story about a way that a story has been told through time. So. In order to wrap up this whole series, I'm going to now attempt to give a bit of a tour through time of the image that Boudicca has had. And there's not going to be any comprehensible through line to this uh, for the very reason that the commentators and the writers and the monarchs who have used this story have picked up and used it. So if it ever gets confusing or contradictory, that's because it is. I think people have seen this story and thought, that is useful, that's powerful, there's that there's parts of it that are awkward that don't fit into my narrative, so I'm going to have to mould it and shape it into what I want. But it has a sort of potency. Even the Iron Age Britons were doing this, were telling stories about themselves, about where they came from. Uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth, who's a 12th century writer, he writes about this, this myth of the Trojan founders of Britain. And a lot of the, the, it's thought that this kind of quite likely came from Iron Age Britons, probably tribal chiefs, trying to draw a connection between themselves and the Trojans, and oddly by association, themselves and the Romans, who were the focal point of power and a means of cashing in on a sort of political currency. So we're all telling these foundational stories to associate ourselves with people or with moments that have historical currency, and that's exactly how the story of this story plays out as well. Now, Boudicca really disappears for several hundred years after the the abandonment of Roman Britain or the, the fall of the Roman Empire. So the history of how this story has been told restarts in the early 15th century, when Tacitus's writings in particular, but, but various classical writers, were sort of rediscovered. And Europe begins to view its, its classical past with a sense of gravity in what, you know, what many of us know as the Renaissance. And I think it's significant, and, it, and it, I'll come back to this, but that this rediscovery of, of classical works comes into its full bloom at about the same time as Columbus is making his first trips to the Americas. And Europeans are becoming interested in, in casting themselves in the context of these new peoples who, as, as we know, 
that relationship often looks like the Europeans casting themselves as as civilized modern people and the the natives of the Americas as sort of pagan savages as an earlier form of being. And this goes for both the, the South American peoples who, who Columbus was interfacing with, but also the, the native North American peoples that would later come to, I think, inform a lot of the image of Boudicca and the Celts that has been built over the past few hundred years. Now, the first stop off on our tour is going to be the Elizabethan reception of Boudicca. This is all happening in the context of the English Reformation. Henry VIII splits from the Roman Church in the 1530s. It's only 100 years after the initial discovery of these sources of Tacitus's texts. So these new stories are, these are hot new property. They are hanging around and people are, are deciding how we can use these, how we can tie this in with our national narrative. Now, obviously, when Henry VIII broke with Rome, there was a big preoccupation with this change and with what this change meant for the national identity. And lots of British artists and writers, eventually Shakespeare, um, obviously not under Henry VIII, but a bit later on, are producing a lot of works at this time that are self-referentially British or English and about Englishness and Britishness and about the history of those places. England was under a lot of, of, of political, ideological pressure from the outside. And it's worth remembering was not at this point a massively powerful empire, it was really a, an underdog on the peripheries of Europe to these big Catholic continental powers. So there's this preoccupation with the idea of a new sort of self-confident Englishness and importantly, its relationship with an oppressive and far-reaching tyranny from Rome. In this case, no longer in the character of Nero, but in the character of the Pope. And that's both as an, a kind of outward-facing image makeover and also a way of narrativizing this change for the, the people of England, who, as you can imagine, might be a bit worried about these changes, about being invaded from abroad or about, you know, something little like going to hell. And I think this story begins to be used, as it will be throughout time, as, as we'll see, as a way of telling people that actually things have always been like this. That actually maybe Catholicism was the terrible change, the breakaway from tradition, and that there is something comfortingly traditional about this, this way of Englishness and this rooting English story. I keep seeing, I think it's interesting how, particularly in moments of newness, in moments of innovation, the reflex actually of the people trying to sell that newness seems to be to link it to the past in a way to say that this is actually how it's always been. We're not making a scary change. Almost as though the new idea on its own, in this case, you know, the Church of England, is kind of too wobbly to, to stand on its own. It needs a foundation. It needs, it needs precedent. So they're using her as a, as a legitimising root of the English nation and of its separateness from the continent. And the story both contains, if you like, an idea of British unity and of the, the virtue and, and the defiance that it has shown in the face of encroaching Romans or encroaching Catholics, as it became at that point. Um, this is uh, Hingley and Unwin. They say, quote, It would have been convenient as a result for the English to be able to rediscover civilised and noble ancestor figures in the accounts of the Roman authors, end quote. That's under Henry VIII. But under Elizabeth, this, this, this need for national identity, national confidence becomes all the more urgent. You've got the Spanish Armada. You've got much more, I suppose, the realisation of these, these threats from Catholic continental Europe. And the comparison becomes all the more appropriate due to this, this female monarch suddenly being on the throne. Further to that, the Tudor line was in part Welsh or, or well, Henry VII has spent a lot of time in Wales and I, I think there's sort of Welsh ancestry there. So this association to a, a sort of authentic Welsh Celtic Britishness is a very useful part of the package for Elizabeth. 
there's this guy called Gosson, a writer in, in 1579, wrote an oration on Boudicca, and it ties this kind of this sense of continuity together. It ends with, quote, God hath now blessed England with a queen, in virtue excellent, in power mighty, in glory renowned, in government politic, in possession rich, end quote. And he sort of sets up this idea of the narrative of English history really just being all a through line up to this point of Elizabeth arriving on the throne and an echo between Elizabeth and Boudicca that suggests that, that, that when England or when Britain is in need, it summons up a great queen. As I said, a sort of spirit of Britain, a Britannia who will come and save, save Britain in its, in its hour of need. I think possibly without realising it or possibly self-consciously, Elizabeth at Tilbury is basically a time-travelled kind of version of Boudicca. In any case, we have this red-haired warrior queen in the trappings of military regalia, opposing European dominance, addressing her sort of ragged band of warriors, and both are employing the the sort of perceived masculine art of oratory, and they are making self-conscious reference to, to the fact that they are a woman out of place, in quotation marks, and on the battlefield. And they're using that fact self-consciously to rally their troops against these foreigners. Now, the final comparison to, to Elizabeth I I want to make is, is in the way kind of, it's kind of played to their, their sexuality. This, this guy, um, Raphael Hollinshead, or Hollinshed, uh, describes Boudicca as, he says, quote, her mighty tall personage, comely shape, severe countenance, and sharp voice with her long and yellow tresses of hair reaching down to her thighs, her brave and gorgeous apparel, also caused the people to have her in great reverence, end quote. Now, I think in this description, as so often kind of happens in history, um, as I mentioned in the first episode of this series, that the female figure's appearance becomes central. And I think her sort of attractiveness, her comely figure, either aesthetic or, or sexual, becomes a sort of proxy for her importance, her power, her, her virtue. And similarly with, with Elizabeth, the eternal maid, the Virgin Queen. She, she was described near the end of her reign as, quote, very youthful, still in appearance, seeming no more than 20 years of age, end quote. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily true. In fact, famously, it kind, of, it kind of wasn't true, but it was the significant element that people needed to be true in order for these women to be powerful, in order for them to be admirable. Conversely, of course, with Elizabeth, her virtue is represented in her virginity, but I think that's, in many ways, that's equally sexualizing. And that is, that's her virtue, not just in the old-fashioned marital sense of the word, but I think it's also seen as her greatness. It's a sort of analogue for the purity of the golden age that she oversaw. Now, our next up on the, this tour through time is the, the Jacobean reception of Boudicca. So off the back of the Elizabethan golden age, James I, or James VI and I, has come to the throne, and England, and in, indeed a sort of burgeoning sense of Britain, is transitioning from being a nation fighting for its survival to being a major world power. And for this reason, we see a, a shifting in the narrative around Boudicca to begin to align more with the Romans, also to begin to foreground the idea of union rather than separateness, for obvious reasons. In the 17th century, we see the growth of English colonies in America, the beginnings of them. So the story of Boudicca morphs into a story about the interface between civilised and savage peoples, both of those very heavily in, in inverted commas, and the questions it begins to pose are, you know, what does the savage look like? What is good about these people? And, but also why ultimately do, do they need us? 
In Hingley and Unwin's words, uh, these questions are, quote, whether the ancient Britons should be revered as virile warriors or condemned as cruel and ignorant savages, and whether they provided a viable or desirable route for the origins of the English nation, end quote. So this ambivalence is beginning to creep in. Now, England, I think at this point, is, is really an imperial power both at home and abroad. And by that, I mean that this this burgeoning sense of of a united kingdom this is i mean this is by no means united kingdom yet but of an english nation which has which has sort of subordinate nations within that island of of wales and of scotland and eventually of ireland and abroad of having these these colonies in north america and this slight shift in perspective can be seen in the work of this guy john speed who wrote the History of Great Britain, uh, which is a quite grandiose title, in 1611, uh, just after the death of Elizabeth. And in this, in this moment of identity shift, he describes the Iron Age Britons as, quote, their growing naked, staining and colouring their whole bodies, and the cutting, pinking and pouncing of their flesh with garnishments of sundry shapers and fashions, end quote. And then he moves on to talk about, quote, the more civil Britons, and, and this is this is Boudicca, by the way, this is sort of Romanized Britain, and how they became far more modest, that is indeed more womanly, having learnt that they then openly show most beauty, much less exposed to the view, that which nature most endeavoured to hide, end quote. This is illustrated then with a sort of woodcut or something that comes with it, um, and the illustrations are first of this totally naked, tattooed man with a big sword and a decapitated head rolling by his feet, this sort of virile, savage warrior, very much set up as a, as a sort of impressive, albeit sort of terrifying, uh, figure evidently in the mind of whoever illustrated this and then the second is of literally of Boudicca uh, and essentially she's wearing sort of 17th, 17th century wear uh, she's wearing a corset and a kind of long skirt but she then has these tattoos showing on her arms and legs this sort of stamp of her her sort of exciting barbarous background but softened by the refining influences of civilization. Essentially, what's being suggested, there's a kind of innate quality in this barbarian origin, but that, that it was only made worthy by the influences of imperial civilization. So this is at once justifying a kind of Celtic British origin story, but hopefully a unifying one that we, we, you know, we all have these ancestors in common, whilst also putting it behind them and contextualizing this new relationship that the burgeoning British Empire is going to have with native peoples in the Americas, essentially suggesting that these people are improved by the influences of civilization. I think counterintuitively as well, there's, there's a turn during the rule of James away from the idea of female rule being desirable. It's kind of predictable, I suppose. Um, but it's ironic because he's inherited both of his thrones from women. However, I think the feeling is, is, is much more, or the presentation is much more of sort of, thank God we finally got a king again, hooray. In Macbeth, which is Shakespeare's I think his first play after the accession of, of James to the throne, we, we can kind of see the dangers of female corruption to power in Lady Macbeth. And in 1609, we get this play from John Fletcher, Bonduca, in which broadly Boudicca is a, is a kind of dangerous, ambitious woman, and all of the defeats are down to her, and Caraticus gets inserted into the story as the moderating influence who gains all of the victories. And after the final defeat, one of Caraticus's final lines is, quote, Home, home, and spin, woman, spin. Go spin, ye trifle, O woman, scurvy woman, beastly woman, end quote. 
kind of taken straight out of the mouth of Tacitus, really. And I think this is interesting. I mean, this pops up again and again. I'm not going to go through all of the ages of, of, of the reception of Boudicca, but it pops up again and again that whenever there isn't a female monarch on the throne, there's this real anxiety about female rule, that it's going to lead to something terrible, that the fall of the nation will be precipitated. And then it very quickly gets forgotten when, you know, if you know a little bit about the history of, of our monarchs, broadly our female monarchs have been really quite successful. And then suddenly Boudicca becomes this fantastic figure who's, who's very worthy of emulation. But as soon as they're gone, the, the misogynistic worries kind of creep back in. Now, with the Victorians, or, or specifically actually with Victoria, the image of Boudicca, I think, finds its kind of ultimate form. And the duality, I think, of this figure, both as a, as a, as a figure of sort of British independence and also as this, this great warrior queen, and then also the duality of this story either in which we align ourselves with the Britons or the Romans, all sort of get synergized into a figure really, I think, indistinguishable from Britannia, from that, that figure of Britannia that we see in statues and in paintings, and entwined totally with the empire. Now, the British Empire sees itself both as the inheritor of Rome, but also as outstripping it. Uh, John Collingwood Bruce wrote in 1581, quote, "'Another empire has sprung into being of which Rome dreamt not.' in this island where, in Roman days, the painted savage shared the forest with the beast of prey, a lady sits upon the throne of state, wielding a scepter more potent than Julius or Hadrian ever grasped. Her empire is threefold that of Rome in the hour of its prime, but the power is not her brightest diadem. The holiness of the domestic circle irradiated her. Literature and all the arts of peace flourish under her sway. Her people bless her." End quote. Now that's literally referring to, to Victoria, but I think has a sort of shadow of Boudicca in it. The suggestion is that, that whereas Rome fell due to its internal sort of Latin corruption, the British have their own virtue, have something different that makes them suitable to rule over this, this empire three times as big. A view of this, this benevolent paternalistic empire or, or this can conveniently be spun actually as a, as a maternalistic empire with the great Victoria who who sort of ceases to be a woman in a great sacrifice for the people of the empire and becomes a universal sort of mother. And in this, in, in, in contrast to the sort of the sexualized or the gendered version that we've seen with, with Elizabeth, Boudicca ceases to be foregrounded as this sort of wavy-haired, violent warrior queen and becomes far more foregrounded as a, a sort of comforting maternal figure, sheltering her daughters rather than chopping Romans up. And this transformation from a, a real figure whose violent actions live within those, you know, those 12 months or so of her rebellion, into a sort of symbolic Britannia who serenely envisions the British Empire before it was even a, a twinkle in its mother's eye, uh, gets, gets crystallised by William Cowper in his epic poem, Boadicea and Ode, uh, which I will quote at length, but you'll bear with me. Rome shall perish, write that word, in the blood that she has spilt, perish hopeless and abhorred, deep in ruin as in guilt, Rome for empire far renowned, trampled on a thousand states. Soon her pride shall kiss the ground. Hark, the Gaul is at her gates. Other Romans shall arise, heedless of a soldier's name. Sounds, not arms, shall win the prize. Harmony, the path to fame. Then the progeny that springs from the forest of our land, armed with thunder, clad with wings, shall a wider world command. Regent Caesar never knew, thy posterity shall sway. Where his eagles never flew, none invincible as they. Ruffians, pitiless as proud, Heaven awards the vengeance due. Empire is on us bestowed. Shame and ruin wait for you. Now, I've chopped a bit out there to avoid this episode being three hours long. But this, 
this poem places Boudicca and this poem gets quoted time and time again and it's the foreword to loads of books and all sorts of stuff. It places Boudicca as a sort of prophetess of empire, which obviously makes no sense at all because that definitely wasn't what she was doing. But it manages to kind of compromise these two niggling contradictions that the Victorians have, that she is, she is British and a great warrior queen. However, she also lost to the Romans, which isn't so great, um, and saw Britain reduced to a colony of a greater power. But here Cowper tells us and that sort of in being conquered, Britain became destined somehow for greatness. Empire is on us bestowed. And importantly, Rome fell for the very reason of its cruelty. Write that word in the blood that she has spilt. And the, the pretty insidious suggestion here really is that the British Empire has risen because it's because it's benevolent and lovely, which is very much part of the branding of the British Empire at its height and fits very comfortably with the Victorian mind and the image of Victoria, as well as Boudicca, as this great, serene mother. Now, I think in, in the comparisons to, the Victor to Victoria and to Elizabeth, actually, we can see something more fundamental in our relationship to Boudicca and to the idea of Britannia. You know, most nations are either fatherland or motherland, and the United Kingdom is, is most definitely a, a motherland. And is significantly, I, I mean, I guess coincidentally, but, but is a nation of great queens. As I said, we've got Victoria, Elizabeth I, Elizabeth II. Henry VIII, off the top of my head, I think, is, is maybe the only similarly famous monarch. Here's a verse which was, which was catchily titled, The Exemplary Lives and Memorable Acts of Nine of the Most Worthy Women in the World, uh, which reads, quote, How much, O Britain, are we bound to thee, mother and nurse of magnanimity? of which, though from antiquity hath lent unto all ages famous precedent, witness this British queen, whose masculine spirit shall to all future glorious fame inherit, end quote. That's, that's describing Boudicca specifically. And I think this reflects this, maybe one of the kind of central modes of our relationship between subject and state in this country has been a sort of dutiful son to a benevolent, supremely powerful mother, who is both sort of in need of protection, but also watches over her children. Maybe that's typical of many countries, I suppose, but, but I think specifically the idea of a sort of masculine spirit is important here as well. The British queen with a masculine spirit, who sort of in spite of, well, feminine weakness, it could be said, but sort of feminine virtue as well, in spite of a sort of innate want to be gentle and benevolent, also rises to greatness and when, in, when backed into a corner is capable of sort of great reluctant power. Now, with the end of the Victorian age, this brings us up to the modern telling of Boudicca. These, these tellings so far, positive or negative, pro-British or pro-Roman, have all been about uniting the nation, about finding common identity. The modern Boudicca, though, loops back to, I think, a perhaps truer version of herself. As, as Phoebe pointed out in our interview, that chariot-mounted freedom fighter outside the Houses of Parliament can hardly be said to be pro-establishment. If we look at her in the facts that we know about the story, the obvious flip side of Boudicca is as a champion for those railing against the establishment. And, and for this reason, Boudicca's co-option in the 20th century, I suppose which you could say is a, is a century certainly in the second half, defined by counterculture, the way that her story is told becomes incredibly diverse. This is from Dora Montefiore, who was a leading suffragist uh, in 1906. She said, quote, One of my best meetings was close to the statue of Boadicea. It had long been my wish to hold a meeting there, as Boadicea and her chariot always appeared to be advancing threateningly on the Houses of Parliament, and she was therefore a symbol of the attitude towards Parliament of us militant women, end quote. 
Now, this is this is kind of claiming Boudicca both as a as a powerful woman exercising essentially political power, which is pretty relevant if you're asking for the right to vote, but also as a resistor of tyrannical government. So as Montefiore points out, there's a sort of irony and also a sort of suitability to the statue situation. Ironically, a statue, of course, placed there by the powers that be is being used just a few years later. You know, it had only been put up in the very early 20th century. It's already being kind of weaponized against them. Uh, further to this, just as a few kind of crazy examples, Boudicca has been co-opted as a kind of punky rock icon played by Toya Wilcox. Uh, my mate Phoebe just claimed her as a Scottish icon. A commercial for the Mitsubishi Colt 1800 GTI claimed it was the type of car modern Bodiceas should drive, I suppose suggestive of sort of a rebellious attitude. Uh, in 2002, a parade from the Essex Tourist Board dressed up as Bodicea and her Celtic warriors to go and complain to Downing Street about how foot and mouth measures were hurting their economy. Even within politics in the 20th century, Boudicca has been used as a kind of a sign of cutting against the herd. Thatcher was portrayed by, by political cartoonists as Boudicca in her chariot kind of charging off to war in the Falklands and leaving her, her naysayer cabinet, her advisers behind. So all of these are using Boudicca as a kind of symbol of, of individual agency against a monolithic establishment. Now, one thing, I mean, one modern use, I suppose, as we saw from Montefiore, and one thing I wanted to get round to talking is her her image as a feminist, or her, I suppose, her use as a feminist icon. The original Roman image, of course, was, and has, I think, been seen through time, actually, as a sort of femme fatale slash femme fragile. She's sort of capable of incredible, formidable, ferocious bursts of energy that Tacitus endows her with. However, she is only capable of sustaining it for a very short burst of time. You know, as soon as she's knocked back, she, she kills herself. And that, as I said, extends between, as a comparison between the peoples that the, the Romans are famous for. Well, actually, they are famous for losing lots of battles, but winning lots of wars, which they see as a sort of stoic virtue, the ability to lose and carry on, whereas the tempestuous barbarians will, will fall apart as soon as they're met with, with any failures. However, I think this is actually not so different from the way we've continued to tell this story. I don't think we've come that far. I think it resonates with the modern way that we present strong women in media, in stories, um, as kind of driven by an emotional response, usually by a kind of domestic incursion to give them a, a righteous power. We get these urban legends about mothers lifting cars in order to rescue trapped children, that they are only capable of great strength when, when threatened. And it's not great strength that they can kind of control and command, but rather something that sort of channels through them from a sort of innate feminine power. Similarly, within the story, Boudicca rallies together these impossibly disparate peoples of Britain and defeats a legion, this great historic achievement. However, it's not something that's presented as, as planned. It's something she's only capable of because her domestic sphere, the, the sanctity of her children and of her own body, has been sullied, has been violated. Now, I think it's obvious why, why she's become a sort of pop feminist icon, why she's easy to grab hold of. Uh, her land is taken away from her by a, an incredibly patriarchal society for the very reason that she is a woman. Uh, Rome's occupation of Britain at the time, as I said, it is portrayed, you know, in this frieze of Claudius pinning this personified female Britannia as the masculine Romans conquering the female, the female body of the, pro of the provinces. She and her daughters are abused, and, and despite how stacked the times are against her and against, against women more broadly, she rises up and vengefully destroys her abusers, and she gets martyred for it. And she even takes her own life, so, so it could be made into a sort of totem of, of female bodily autonomy. But, I, I mean, I think this is, this is all part of, 
well, what Phoebe was saying in the in the interview, which hadn't occurred to me, the idea that that the the, the rape of her daughters is is quite possibly a sort of um, a stock inclusion on behalf of the male storyteller to sort of make sense of how she can have this power, of how she can have this this righteous revenge. Also, there's this pop historical idea, I think, that pre-Roman Britain was a more egalitarian, you know, particularly along gender lines idea. So it serves as a, as a picture of feminism, not as a kind of revolutionary idea, but actually as returning to a natural state of things. As I've said, this is a kind of pattern in a powerful bit of ammunition that any ideology can, can employ to suggest a return to how things always were as the right way of things being. And that this is all the more notable when it's with progressive ideologies. But I think we will still, in, in championing progressive ideologies, not rely upon the sort of innate truth of those ideologies, but rather in, in sort of historical precedent as the justifying factor. Now, it's not perhaps not even important, but it's fair to say that Boudicca was not herself a feminist. I don't think that she was trying to upend the, the order of gender relations in her world. I think if, she, you know, if she's a feminist, then so is, so is Thatcher. But is she a feminist icon? I suppose there's a school of thought that her historical actions are irrelevant, but what she represents in a more totemic way is, is important. That's what, the, that's what the Romans used her for. That's what the Victorian nationalists were using her for. So, so why not the feminist movement too? If the idea of Boudicca changes the way that we think about women in history or encourages young people to learn about the past who otherwise might not or serves as an example of standing up for yourself despite the system telling you that you should lie down, then maybe that's great. Caitlin Gillespie, who wrote um, a, an essay, Boudicca, the Warrior Queen, I think puts it fantastically. She says, quote, Boudicca seeks freedom from persecution and the changes forced upon her and her Britons by a colonial power. She thus presents a problem for the idea of progress. She is a progressive figure from a modern perspective as a female political and military leader, but retrogressive in her desire to remain separate from the Romans and their conceptions of civilization and urban development, end quote. So there is this kind of this tension, I suppose, with Boudicca as a figure moving forward, but also also seeking to move backwards, perhaps seeking to take us back to the Iron Age. Now that brings us nicely on, I think, to, to probably the most foundational way that we see Boudicca now and the way that we relate to this story. And that's in our relationship to an idea of a real Britain, an original Britain. And the question I would put and that I hope to, to perhaps answer before the end of this episode, is does the story of Boudicca really function for us in much the same way as it did for the Romans, as a barb to our decadence, our fallen virtue, and as a plea to return to something more simple and sort of true to our roots? Now, I think I mentioned in the first episode this idea of Albion. This is a very old name for Britain, or perhaps a name for the idea of a place before it was taken over by Romans, before it became Britain, that was ruled by giants, uh, that was ruled by Brutus from Troy. It's sort of irrelevant who you place there, but it is a romanticised or a mythologised idea about what the, the original or the true Britain was, and various groups can project onto that whatever ideas they want. It's a blank canvas because nobody there was actually writing down what it was like. Now, in the most obvious sense, I think it can be co-opted by sort of isolationists, by, by, by the, the Brexit-minded among us. This tie-in comes from kind of the idea of our ancient freedoms, the idea that Iron Age Britain was a utopian society before the Norman yoke, before the Roman yoke, before whatever projected idea we have of somebody else coming in and controlling what we do. And I think in that context, a, a nostalgia for Boudicca makes, makes an awful lot of sense as She's literally one of the, the earliest confirmable people living on the island. 
So we invariably locate national identity in the past, and she represents a time when, when the idea of Britain was young, before it became complicated by the kind of aches and pains of time and the complicated baggage that it's picked up along the way. And further to this, I think there's a sort of meta-nostalgia for Boudicca as it's, it's the history we learnt when we ourselves were young. As I pointed out, it's kind of a primary school subject. So as a story, it, it sort of regresses us to a simpler time before people started telling us, you know, as they started to tell us about this story itself and as we've been telling ourselves about our own national history that perhaps it's, it's all a bit more complicated than we thought. And this story acts as a sort of refuge against that of an old and virtuous route, a simpler route to who we were. Now that takes us to the questions of, well, who are we in this story? Are we the Britons or are we in fact the Romans? Boudicca, along with Vercingetorix, who's from Gaul, or Caraticus, who's another Briton, or Arminius from Germany, stands as a sort of freedom fighter against Rome, who is memorialised in countries, in all of these countries, who are also the inheritors of many aspects of Roman civilization. There is a kind of paradox in our simultaneous identification with the ancient Britons and with our historical association with the Romans. This is even physicalized in the statuary of our cities, Boudicca's statue in Parliament Square, and then the statue, there's a statue of Agricola, who is the bloody oppressor of the Britons, just outside Manchester Town Hall. And these, you know, these statues aren't left over from the Roman occupation. These were built by the Victorians, who were, as we've just covered, busy also bigging up Boudicca. I think whilst we're telling this story in the UK or we're hearing it, we place ourselves as Boudicca and the Britons. And I imagine that's what many of you have been doing over the past couple of episodes. I, th I think we've covered a lot of what that entails, but there are very real ways in which we are much more successors of the Romans than we are of the Britons. In case you haven't noticed by this stage, Boudicca lost. Britain remained Roman for, for a good 350 more years. And, and by the time they left, the Romano-British were were reportedly fighting under the likes of King Arthur to retain that Romano-British heritage. Now, that's not to say we're genetically or ethnically Roman, but 350 years of Roman cultural assimilation is a really powerful thing. And, you know, well, sort of via Rome nicking lots of Greek ideas, in many ways, our government, our literature, our rhetoric, our architecture, our worldview is a lot more Roman than it is Iron Age British. And that's not to comment on who's right in this narrative or who we're meant to side with, who is the aggrieved or the justified party, but, but rather just for honesty's sake, I think we are kidding ourselves when we place ourselves in this story, as we do, and say that we are 100% Boudicca and 0% Paulinus. Now Albion, that idea I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, the word comes from a, is probably a derivation from a proto-Indo-European word for white, i.e. the white cliffs of Dover, probably or possibly the pasty inhabitants of the island. Now, Celtic language words for Scotland are, are now usually some form of Alba. So we can see this, this echo that Alba is a sort of a remaining original part, the true successor of pre-Roman Britain, perhaps as are the other Celtic nations of, of the UK. Now, this, this story in that context isn't, I'm not saying the cause of, but is deeply reflective of a divide that I think many nations grapple with over who can claim to be the true residents of that nation or its true inheritors. And although we're often, you know, we're used to hearing that as an ethnically driven debate, in this case, I think it's geographical or it's, it's cultural as much as anything. In the UK, that's most clearly come down to a divide between London or the southeast or England and the rest of the country. 
it's worth remembering that, that Roman Britain was only ever, you know, really a bit more than a third of the actual island of Britain. So this this story exists in parallel, I think, to the tensions, joking or serious, that run through British society between the Celtic nations of the UK and the non-Celtic one. Very crudely, I suppose, between the metropole and its colonies. In its original form, this story is about Rome and Britain. Now I think it has become one more of, of self-examination about England and the rest of the UK. This is probably a good time to talk about that term Celtic for a moment. I defined it in the first episode, perhaps slightly glibly, as a sort of pan-European culture who have trousers and plaid and bagpipes in common. And the further I get into the actual proper historian's work on this, the, the more useless the word Celtic seems to be. Simon Jenkins, a historian uh, in, a, in a new book, The Celts, A Skeptical History, does a pretty convincing job of really tearing down the idea that these people ever existed. And, and before I get bombarded with emails from Scottish and Welsh and Irish listeners, that's not to say that those individual nations don't have a distinct national cultural story that you can call Celtic if you like, but to say that the idea that they have a joint Celtic story doesn't doesn't have particularly deep historical legs. However, the, the idea of Celticness is very real. And ideas about ourselves is exactly what this podcast is trying to trade in. The term Celt is originally used by Herodotus and Hecateus, um, who are ancient Greek writers, to talk about non-Greeks to the north of them. And it seems to have kind of migrated or evolved in a pattern that we still haven't really broken into a generalised term for a foreigner. So it's, it's used really as a, as, a, as a negative distinction. In the context of the story of Boudicca, it's a term that, that is used to distinguish someone in opposition to Rome. Not to identify any distinct kind of Celticness, but to identify a definite non-Romanness. And in our, our more modern history, perhaps, and I'm, I might get in trouble for this, I think it's a term that has lazily come to be used to distinguish someone in the UK in opposition to being English. And this story, a Celtic true Briton standing up to the oppression of the metropole, gets at a fairly fundamental divide that runs through the internal politics of our national narrative, you know, for at least the last millennium. That relationship between a, a perceived sort of dominant oppressive England and the other nations of the UK. So there's maybe a, a couple of ways that we might understand that ongoing significance of this story. It can be seen, of course, as a, a mythic story for the Celtic diaspora, that the, the, the people that Boudicca represents are in fact the modern Welsh and Scottish and Irish that were pushed out of England and are now residing in Wales or Scotland or Ireland, or indeed Devon or Cornwall, and are somehow preserving something of that Celticness. Or, and this is the other significance this story can have, and I think I'm guilty of this myself, as I think, as are many English Britons, it's a story that offers the opportunity for the, the self-consciously, perhaps sort of shamefully, unfashionably non-Celtic English person to role-play as a sort of imagined native forebear, a sort of residual spirit of a truer Celtic Britain that resides in our shamefully Romanized, effeminized society. Now, you may have noticed that that sounds pretty familiar, because it's what Tacitus was saying about his own society. Maybe we're more, we're more like Tacitus than we think, and maybe we're telling this story for exactly the same reasons. You see, Tacitus was using Boudicca to tell a story about his own society and to critique what it had become. He saw that Rome, perhaps near the sort of zenith of its power, had become cruel and decadent and debauched and had lost sight of the virtues that had made it great to begin with. He saw Boudicca as a representation of these old virtues and as a foil to highlight the, the fallen character of his own people. 
Now we, uh, for you know, for those of my listenership who who do live in similar circumstances to myself in in the early twenty first century Western society, I think have some things at least superficially in common with early imperial Rome. We've just come off the back of a period of globe spanning power. We are, in broad terms, more prosperous than we have ever been. Yet, like imperial Rome, the deep cracks of dysfunction are are very visible to us. You know, we've we've had over the past few years the situation with with food banks. We've got the current. Well, just just for context, this is this is mid to late October 2022. If you're listening to this later, look back at what was happening in. in in conservative party politics at this point the cracks in our system are are seeming to become very apparent and i think we float this story of boudicca imagining ourselves to be inheritors of her proud defiance whilst we are actually the romans unconsciously perhaps or maybe consciously we are using it to pick at a scab that we are very apprehensive about a suspicion that our post-industrial post-colonial society has become decadent has become too urbanised, has become soft. You know, whatever those things mean to you. As I said, this plays if you're a punk, if you're a hippie, if you're a Brexiteer, any number of current ideologies this works for, and that we would like to be Boudicca, and that we're a bit worried that we might actually be Nero. Now, I think this is a suitable place to bring this to a close, because this is, I've realised in discussing it with non-British friends and acquaintances, a very British story. Non-British people, with a few exceptions, seemed not to know this story broadly, whereas the British public, at least my generation and earlier, uh, for them it seems to be a, a story that we grew up with, uh, that we're fed foundationally in our primary schools. So, well, I'll stop navel-gazing and I'll give our international listeners a break. And as Dio quite comically, I think, ends his own account of the story of Boudicca, so much for affairs in Britain. Thank you very much and congratulations to all of you who have managed to listen all the way to the end of this episode and all the way to the end of this second season of Pedestals. There will be another season coming out, as I always say, at some point in the future. I'm not even yet sure of the subject of that next season, so if you do have any suggestions, then please do get in touch at pedestalspodcast at gmail.com. That's also the right address to get me if I've made any glaring errors um, or if you just want to say hi. Um, I am learning as I go along, both about the process of researching into these topics um, and of recording and editing them as I go. If you would like to support the podcast, then I have a Patreon page that is patreon.com forward slash pedestals. I'm not offering any particular rewards. This would be a purely philanthropic gesture from yourselves to help uh, support this podcast and uh, the associated costs. As I've suggested previously, um, I can't promise monthly content or anything. So if you feel like just making a one-off donation as you go, then you can just make a pledge and then you can cancel that subscription and you won't get any further payments taken from your account. Other than that, all that remains to say is thank you very much for sticking with me. This is podcast is written and narrated by me, Peter Dewhurst, and I hope to see you again next time. Goodbye.